This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, an emotionally charged opera exploring racial injustice in contemporary America sets the stage as the New Orleans Opera Association presents the southern premiere of Blue. And we'll have the latest on a plan to close homeless encampments in New Orleans and provide housing for residents in need. But first... Southern states are betting that electric vehicles will usher in a manufacturing renaissance in the region. Georgia recently promised nearly $2 billion in incentives to convince Hyundai to open an EV plant there. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports southern states are also betting EVs will lead to carloads of good jobs. I'm at this outdoor farmer's market in Birmingham. And to my left, we got a bluegrass band singing about a steam-powered airplane. And to my right, an electric car show. I'm in the uh, little smart electric car. Yeah, bright orange. (laughs) Yeah. Shane Campbell is representing the Alabama Clean Fuels Coalition. Convertible, super fun to drive. It's basically a combination of a uh, golf cart and a go-kart. Now, you might not think of pairing EVs in Alabama, but the state's already a big player when it comes to automobile manufacturing. From Toyota to Mercedes, four major automakers have assembly plants here. That's staggering when you think about it. This Alabama has become literally the new Detroit. Foreign automakers have been filling the South with factories for decades. Unions have less of a grip here, and states have been willing to throw in incentives worth hundreds of millions of dollars to win over companies. And now the Biden administration is throwing in its own incentives to get EVs made in America with Campbell hoping that means made in Alabama. I want those jobs here, you know? I want my friends and coworkers employed. So Alabama's full steam ahead on electric. Yeah. One of the people on a mission to make the dream of EV jobs a reality is Michael Oatridge. He's the head of the Alabama Mobility and Power Center at the University of Alabama. And while EVs might be Alabama's future, His vision for them is wrapped in nostalgia. If you think back of all those movies we watch on television where there was that factory town. All yours, Alan. Thanks, Bill. Those cities and those towns were supported by industry. Big EV assembly plants are going to need a lot of smaller support plants located in smaller cities like Selma. Oatridge says bringing EV plants to places like Alabama's Black Belt can provide the investment in good jobs the region lacks. Utilizing this industrial revolution that's going on in the auto industry to really create some social equity among the entire population of the state. Now, as much as Oatridge is a cheerleader for an EV Alabama future, he says it's also important to make sure it's done right. After all, some of the small auto plants Alabama already has have been hit with fines from federal regulators over dangerous work conditions and debts. Then there's making sure factories don't open up just to close their doors a decade or two from now. We have to say, hey, is that factory long-term viability? Is there new battery technology that will make that obsolete or will that be there forever? Oatridge is optimistic Alabama can pull it off and attract good, long-lasting EV jobs to the state. When it comes to the auto workers already here, feelings are more mixed. One battery plant worker I spoke to was all in on EVs. Others are more concerned, like Morris Mock. He works at a Nissan assembly plant north of Jackson, Mississippi. When it comes to the legacy workers, the workers that have been there for a while, 
what are you going to do with us? He's asking because Nissan doesn't need someone trained to build engines working on an EV that doesn't have an engine. And this is actually a big motivation for the United Auto Workers strike happening right now. The union is pushing for job security during this global EV transition. And it's worth noting that there's little research showing EVs would mean fewer jobs. In fact, some research suggests that they need more jobs. What we do know is that EVs definitely require different jobs, like for building batteries instead of engines. I I just want to make sure that we are in the uh, receiving end of those new opportunities. Mock says existing workers can do those new jobs with some new training. Only thing we know is how to work and how to build with our hands, and we're damn good at it. Now, experts say the switch over to electric vehicles is going to take a long while, so there's still a lot of time to retrain workers. Meanwhile, the Biden administration's optimistic goal is to have half of all passenger car sales in the U.S. go to EVs by 2030. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Racial injustice in 21st century America is in the spotlight as the New Orleans Opera Association presents the southern premiere of Blue, the contemporary opera created by Tony Award-winning composer Janine Tesori and Emmy Award-nominated librettist Taswell Thompson. Received the Music Critics Association of North America's 2020 Award for Best New Opera. Timothy Douglas, stage director for the production of Blue, joins us. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. Thank you so much. There is so much to unpack in this contemporary opera that both celebrates African-American families and explores how violence tears them apart. Let's begin by talking about the title itself, Blue. Does the word have several meanings in this contemporary portrait of a family trying to raise a black son in America? The role of the father is also uh, a New York City police officer. And colloquially in New York, those are known as men in blue. And the other for me is sort of just navigating the mood, tone of dealing with life's challenges. And, you know, depending on one's levels of resilience, that also includes feeling blue. So let's set the stage. What is the story of this emotionally charged opera? In the first act, we get to enter the lives of the mother and the father, which are the names of the characters in the piece, and they are expecting their son. And it is an entrance into a world, specifically Black life. And in this production, I emphasize Black love, the specificity of what it is to be Black in America and how love is woven with our resilience through life in both the attempts to thrive and surviving life in America. So we create a world for this son acknowledging in our very immediate contemporary way that for so many of our black boys and girls, too many taken away, gunned down specifically, uh, and too many cases of unjust murder of unarmed black boys. And I'm, I'm always hesitant to say what happens between the acts, but in fact, this black boy, whom we do get to meet and we get to see um, through his uh, 17th birthday, does indeed lose his life uh, to gun violence. He is killed by a white police officer. And so act two, this is where my second definition of blue comes fully into play, how the parents and the community grieve, mourn, 
berate, uh, engage in uh, the outrage, both of the act itself and the continuance and seeming um, ending loop of this kind of uh, violence and atrocity. But then, true to human and specifically Black Americans, the resilience that rises, we have to go on, how this community supports uh, the mother and father, both on this plane and spiritually, how we move through this kind of tragedy. Now, the story is told by characters who are referred to, as you just said, the mother, the father, the son. And I wondered why they don't have proper names. I never really questioned it because of the, the unfortunate archetype of specific to Black life in America, the violence that's constantly being perpetrated, at least in the headlines and in the news. And so to make it a specific person, perhaps the creators felt that it undercuts the unfortunate universality of this journey. A Black-specific universality, because those of us who come and enter uh, the world of this opera will have an immediate connection and recognition. I don't think there's any Black audience member who will not have some kind of immediate uh, connection and knowledge to someone who, who has gone through, through this tragedy, if not themselves. But then the, the universality with a capital U that anyone who comes to see can appreciate life, can appreciate the loss of life. It seems that the most tragic thing that could happen to a, a parent is the loss of their child, especially when they're so young. And I think keeping it in the archetypes allows the individual experiencing the opera to really experience it personally and on their own terms and in their own thoughts and feelings. Now, what attracted you to the production and what responsibility do you feel in moving the story forward? I make my career as a stage director primarily in the theater, and it is remarkable to me that I would say 85 to 90 percent of the productions I direct uh, a black man dies as part of the central plot. So in that sense, it was in my wheelhouse. And I am just in my career making my transition into directing opera. And because this was an opportunity to look at a story that I am all too familiar with navigating, adding to that the form of opera, it was uh, an opportunity that I, I left at. My responsibility among honoring the composers uh, and bringing their story forth as best as I can. You know, as a director, I get to interpret, but my main responsibility is doing my best to get inside their head and, and really figure out what they were after in terms of impact of storytelling. And then I'm responsible for guiding the way for the performers. And this production in particular, also responsible for the emotional well-being uh, of this uh, company. And of course, as we come together and really start moving through the density of this piece, what more is needed for the performer's well-being reveals itself. And we've been attending to that. We also have an in-house counselor, grief counselor, uh, emotional well-being counselor that has been available to the company from the very beginning and has been utilized. And here we are. So let's talk about the major themes that are being explored and what the experience will be for the audience. One way that I've been describing this production is as a meditation, that the first act is a meditation on uh, black life, black love, the preparation of the arrival of a son, this joyous event of this black family, but a meditation on it. The other characters in the piece are known as the three girlfriends to the mother, 
and the three police buddies to the dead. That's how they're listed. They also don't have individual names. And um, there is also a reverend. Um, but with the police buddies and girlfriends, we have created a world that expanded their roles beyond the human friendships that they engage with mother and father. And they take on the essence of the community at the next level that is surrounding this family and, and moves through this uh, uh, joyous birth and life and tragedy with them. And on that next outer ring, the essence of our ancestors, that, that the spirit of this piece it is so clear when we allow it, and this company absolutely is, that the spirit of our ancestors and everything that has gone before is what anchors and how this resilience that I'm talking about is flowing. And so this production also attempts to honor the ancestral spirit as well. So that even in the tragedy of Act Two, which is a meditation on grief, a meditation on letting go, how does one do that? How does mother and father walk away from the graveside of their son? This is something the piece explores. This is something that we are exploring and moving through with each other. It is our intention that the audience will also be able to continue to move through it with us and not get stuck. What are you hoping will be the takeaway from this portrait of contemporary life affecting many African-American families? Mostly for anyone who comes, that they were able to, if not see themselves or their families or lives in the piece, that it was received in such a way that they do understand that they live in this world and in this community. And that no matter how directly connected they may feel with this specific black family, when you start to circle out, we're all connected. It is my hope that at least the empathy circle has surrounded the Mahalia Jackson Theater and people take that home with them and they talk about it. Stage director Timothy Douglas, thanks so much for being here. You're so welcome. The Southern premiere of Blue will take place on November 10th and 12th at the Mahalia Jackson Theater with music performed by the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra. For more information, visit neworleansopera.org slash blue. From WWNN in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. In May, the nonprofit Unity of Greater New Orleans found that the number of people sleeping on the streets had increased by more than 50 percent since 2022. Now an ambitious project, backed by federal funds and homeless service nonprofits, is in the works to close down homeless encampments and provide housing for residents in need. Mandy Chapman Semple is a managing partner at Clutch Consulting, the group that has been hired to lead this project. She joins us now for more. Mandy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Mandy, you have an extensive career working in homelessness and housing. Can you start by telling us what you've learned over the years about how homelessness really impacts everyone in a community? Yeah, so when I worked um, both as a service provider of a, a running homeless services, running an emergency shelter, um, running permanent housing programs for formerly homeless individuals, and then as I moved into the mayor's office in Houston, what I really learned is kind of how much this issue 
um, impacts the unhoused and housed alike. And that the community really needed to come together and envision a community in which no one was forced to live on the streets. And instead, everyone had the opportunity to really become a part of a neighborhood, become a part of the community and, and put themselves on a, a, a trajectory to thrive. We mentioned that New Orleans has seen a dramatic increase in homeless encampments over the last years. What have been some of the main causes of that? What we've come to to discover is that, in fact, um, there is likely a pretty steady number of individuals who experience housing instability in any, any given year, and a percentage of those individuals just end up falling into homelessness for lack of, um, you know, an, an adequate safety net. And that New Orleans is well positioned to scale their homeless response system to anticipate this inflow and um, help avo- help individuals avoid ever having to sleep outside because there's always enough resource. There's always the safety net available to help those individuals um, escape homelessness as quickly as possible. And so the drivers for that inflow um, are things that are very typical. And certainly the, the ever-changing economic conditions, rising rents, um, you know, scarce, affordable housing, um, you know, wages not keeping pace with the cost of living, those are all um, the drivers uh, that contribute to individuals experiencing housing instability. And then, of course, if there's any kind of vulnerability um, in one's household, it makes you even more susceptible to that housing instability um, resulting in homelessness. Well, let's dive into this plan a little more. I know that there is a goal to give rent subsidies for people living in encampments to help place them in market rate apartments. How will that work? So the strategy is to, yes, um, help individuals who are living in encampments and experiencing any kind of unsheltered homelessness return to housing with a, a rental subsidy and robust support services that wrap around that individual for at least 12 months to help that individual fully stabilize. And in some cases, that the, those services become permanent because that's what they need to remain stably housed. We also continue to provide that same resource to any individual who is experiencing homelessness and ends up in, a, in an emergency shelter. So um, it, it was very important that we think about comprehensively as all of the individuals who may experience homelessness um, fall into that circumstance, how do we activate a system where we can meet them wherever they are? If they're in an encampment, if they're living unsheltered elsewhere, or if they're in an emergency shelter, how do we bring the same rehousing solution um, and make it available and tailor it to the, the unique needs of those individuals? So in some cases, individuals will receive Um, temporary subsidy and temporary services to help them get back on their feet. And in other cases, particularly for those who are permanently disabled, we need to provide longer-term subsidy and supports. When it comes to the the encampment work directly, this is a pretty unique approach where instead of asking individuals in an encampment to leave that encampment and try to come and navigate the services, we literally bring those services right to the encampment and we help that entire encampment navigate those services all at once, creating some efficiency, but also really giving us the ability to then manage that location differently once all of those individuals are housed so that we can go to the next encampment and help all of those individuals with rehousing rather than you know redistributing folks um, across those same, same parcels in the community. 
In order to get this going, you need landlords to sign up to rent units to unhoused people. For any landlords who are hesitant to this may be worried that these individuals won't be able to complete future payments on time. What are you saying to help convince them to be a part of this initiative? Well, we certainly want to partner with landlords. We want to be a good business partner. And we understand that there are real these are real investments. These are, are real businesses. Um, and so we have put together a dedicated landlord engagement team, which means that we have individuals who are dedicated to maintaining that business relationship with the landlords, to supporting the landlords if, if they run into any challenges with their tenants. We're ensuring that there's proper paperwork in place so that those payments are guaranteed for the course of the lease agreement. So really helping to provide um, that, that security to the landlords. Um, and in, in some cases, there are additional financial incentives that can be brought to bear that can help um, reduce risk, like ensuring that there's adequate resources to pay for damages or the likes. Well, you're speaking with Mandy Chapman-Semple, a managing partner with Clutch Consulting, working to address homelessness and housing in New Orleans. According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, about 30% of people experiencing homelessness in the U.S. have mental health conditions. About 50% have co-occurring substance abuse problems. How is your plan addressing this? So this plan takes into consideration all of those particular needs and works to assemble a baseline set of supportive services or case management that that follow every individual into housing for up to 12 months. But then in addition, as we identify and understand the unique needs of that client, so in this particular case, those who have um, substance use disorder or individuals with serious mental illness, we're going to work then to connect them to those services that are already available in the community. And then in the cases where they need a much more robust set of supports, we'll move them on to what's called a permanent supportive housing voucher or program where those services will come to them in, in their unit and provide um, much more of those robust supports. What is the timeline for all of the steps that need to get done? The subsidies, the relocation, the closing down of encampments? So, so we've been working for the last three months to assemble all of those resources in partnership with Nate Fields, the, the Director of Homeless Services and the Mayor's Office at the City of New Orleans, um, the Public Health Department, Council. We've been working with Unity of Greater New Orleans, and we're, we were really pleased to present uh, last week a, a tentative plan that, that assembles or braids existing resources and brings some new resources to bear. So that is certainly underway. We've actually started our first um, encampment response and expect to have two encampments closed by the end of this year. And the goal that was established is to rehouse 1,500 individuals who are, are um, experiencing homelessness. So those that are in encampments, those that are living unsheltered outside of encampments, and those that are in emergency shelters. We plan to, to rehouse 1,500 of those individuals by the end of 2025. Mandy Chapman-Semple is a managing partner with Clutch Consulting. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest from the opera Blue. 
stage director Timothy Douglas, and Mandy Chapman Semple, a managing partner at Clutch Consulting. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.